You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome, everyone, to Her Money. So glad to have all of you along with me today. And so glad that today we are going to turn up the heat a little bit. It might be chilly outside, but we're going to turn up the heat by talking with one of my favorite love and relationship experts. She's also a friend of mine, Dr. Pepper Schwartz. She is the author or co-author of 22 books, which would make you think she has absolutely no time to do anything else. But in fact, she is also AARP's love and relationship experts. She's the voice behind the column, The Naked Truth. And you can catch her starring in the A&E hit docuseries, Married at First Sight. Hi, Pepper. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Jean. It's just always a pleasure to talk to you, hear your voice. You bring a little sun, even if it isn't uh, shining out there. Oh, I was saying, I was telling Pepper before we started this that I'm a little jealous. She's in Sun Valley, Idaho. We are in gray, gray, gray New York City. It is just cold and chilly and yucky out today. How's the skiing? Well, it's it's really (laughs) demanding, actually. I'm not going to go skiing today. I'm going to nestle in and uh, just sort of watch the slopes, but... The rest of my group is going downhill. I'm going to go cross-country. I'm a little bit more of a wuss. I I don't think it sounds like a wuss at all. Cross-country is a fantastic workout, so it sounds like you're having a good time. So let me just start with the show. Tell us how it's going. How are you experiencing all the changes that the couples that you're helping are experiencing? Well, every couple I meet and every couple that goes through this, or for that matter, even your ordinary type of marriage teaches me something because we're very complex we human beings and uh, the things that get us upset are the things that make us happy while if we describe them in broad categories there's a lot of similarity but when we talk about them on a day-to-day basis there's a lot of differences so i think of them as my continuing education as is my own life as as all of our own lives i just find relationships thrilling to watch unwind and disheartening when um, we can't make it a better situation or they don't get back on on the right place. I think they reveal themselves daily. I've, I've really learned a lot from the show and we've had some great successes, which I am, you know, continually proud of. And when they fall apart, I, I, we all feel terrible. It's not just the couple. We're we're all behind them. Everybody wants a happy ending. We do. Uh, that's that's terrific. You know, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with the concept, it, it's exactly what it sounds like. I mean, a team of sociologists, you and, and other doctors, right, you go in there and, and you figure out who you think will be compatible, and then they get married. They meet at the altar, and it's a legal marriage. And I know it sounds kind of outrageous because it is, and at least to a country that hasn't had, except for its Indian citizens, that kind of of cultural background. 
But we've had over 50,000 people in the United States apply for this. That's incredible. Yeah, that was my last number that I heard a couple months ago. So I assume it's more than that. I mean, it's to me, the amount of people who are asking for our expertise to get married at first sight, the amount of people who have done this means that dating and mating has been way more difficult in modern times than we've actually realized and that people are willing to do highly innovative measures to find the love of their life. They're so motivated that they are willing to trust some experts. And mostly it's because they've burned out on their own attempts. And what has amazed me is how young some of them are to be discouraged. It's really such a changing world. I mean, I look at statistics as I know that you do. We've seen that divorce has actually fallen to a 40-year low, the divorce rate. Online dating has never been more popular. I keep reading stories about matchmakers, and I guess you and your team on the show are matchmakers of a sort. Why, why do you think it's gotten so difficult? Well, part of it's demographic. We really have a different vision of how long being young should last, what we should do as young people, and how long we should stay young and single before we get serious. So what's happened from a great low of basically 21 in 1960, being the mean age of marriage, if you have some college, your mean of age of marriage now is 27 or 28. So that means that you've had a lot of life on your own, mm-hmm. you've created a lifestyle, you've created uh, much more mature values, you you are much of more of who you're going to be, And all of that's great. You've traveled. You've done things that your parents or grandparents would never have dreamed of. These are great lives that they're, they're creating, but they're independent lives. And by the time that they get ready to settle down, A, they have a much longer list of who they are and what they want and what they expect. And B, they have a much harder time finding those people because they're no longer in this environment of plentitude. They're not in high school or they're not in college or they're not in jobs where there's lots of other people around them, you know, who would be potential mates. So it makes it harder to meet people and the expectations are much higher and the requirements sometimes are of changing who you are now or modifying, compromising, which is inevitable in a good marriage. That's harder for people when they're sort of more formed than less formed, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think, I think it, it, On the one hand, you're more mature. I think in some ways you can make a better choice. You know who you are more and you know who they are more. But for the reasons I've just mentioned, it's also harder to both find someone and do the kind of adjustments you need to do to create a good relationship. We know that money is one of the points that people fight about, that it is often the most fought about subject in a in a marriage. So when you're looking to put people together, how do you assess financial compatibility? Well, for one thing, we ask them about their expectations economically for themselves and for their partner. How do you want to live? What's the requirement? How much should this other person make? How much what kind of profession should they be in? How much do you care about that? Where is that in your, you know, hierarchy of needs? How did you grow up? How were your expectations about money and lifestyle formed by that? 
And we often give them a problem, like, what would you do if, you know? When you ask people those questions about what their requirements are, what their needs are in terms of how much money their partner makes, that's a that's a question I would imagine some people have a tough time answering because it's it's we're not raised to marry for money necessarily. We're raised to put love on the top of that list. I know, and that's what happens often when people meet the ordinary way they get attracted. Uh, by the person's personality, by the fun, by the joint interests, all that. And they feel it's unworthy, as you say, to think about money. But the fact is they do think about money. It's, it is, it's the most taboo thing to talk about, unfortunately. They will talk about who they love and who they slept with and how that formed them when they get intimate with someone. But they don't really say, like, you know, if you make less than 50000 a year, I'm just going to feel like, you know, you're the wrong person or I'm going to feel cheated or I'm going to worry that I can't live the way my parents did, et cetera. They, they don't like to think to talk that way, but they do think that way. It is emotionally in there. And if they don't, we try and make them honest to themselves. It does not help us for someone to give us politically correct or emotionally correct answers about money and then feel like this is absolutely the wrong class person for them or this is absolutely under what they expect out of life. And once couples are together, how can they make money a romantic topic rather than a topic that's heated all the time, heated in the wrong way? Well, it's a wonderful question. And how many days have you got to talk about it? Um, Because it's an essential skill. And since very few people have it to begin with, they have to develop it together. So I would say the first thing is to acknowledge it's difficult and to acknowledge that much of our feelings may be unknown to us because they were developed as children or are part of our backgrounds that we may have not yet examined. So to say that, you know, if this starts to get heated, instead of getting angry, let's find out where those feelings come from. Why are we getting upset? And let's talk about that. Let's make this as intimate as our vow for monogamy. Our vow is for most people that we will only be sexually faithful to each other. And in this sense, I'd say, okay, we're going to talk about money in a way that we've never talked to anyone else. It's a part of our intimacy. It's a part of our knowing each other. It's a part of our growing together. And I think if you set the rules of engagement, of discussion about this topic and in the way you might other topics, you're much more likely for it to go well. I think that's so key that couples need to close ranks with each other when it comes to their finances. You know, if you can be honest with your spouse and basically agree that it doesn't have to be the business of anybody else in the outside world with the exception of perhaps advisors that you bring on board to help you, you're going to be so much better off because you're not going to allow yourself to be subject to the prying eyes and judgments of the people around you. That's well said, Jean, and it's key for everything about a marriage. We are a team. We are not competing against each other. If there's a problem, we as a team are going to solve the problem. You are not the problem. I am not the problem. The problem is the problem. The two of us will fix it. That's a really, really important to keep in mind. I want to move on and I want to talk a little bit about technology and relationships. But before we get there, let me just remind everybody, 
Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. When you go there, you'll find more conversations like this one with Dr. Pepper Schwartz. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're starting a new career, whether you're getting divorced, or whether you're getting married. And again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. We are happy to be here with Dr. Pepper Schwartz. And I should congratulate you because you're getting married this year. Yes, I am in June uh, to my boyfriend, now fiance of almost 11 years. So um, I have to say we're not getting married at first sight. (laughs) Not at first sight. But what have you learned, I guess, from the show, from your life? I mean, what are the most important things that you take from your career into this marriage? Well, I think the importance to voice all our thoughts, um, to share as intimately as we can under the right circumstances, to declaring sort of conflict-free zones of discussion and to know when to back off when we're not managing it well um, because we're human and, and things can set us off just like everybody else. But I think we've really turned how to, learned how to talk well. And in terms of being you know, a mature woman with a lifetime of an economics behind me as an individual, um, and the same for him, you know, we have to lay it all on the table. You know, what do you have? What do I have? What are we willing to spend? What do we need to save? You know, we're going to have a prenuptial, which means every single thing is known to each other. And I think that helps. I think that keeps us on um, in in reality rather than presumption or assumption. And I think for us, we have to find out over the time, which we have done, what is an equitable division of who spends on what what it is to be a couple and what it is to be individuals. We've we've had to articulate this all very well um, and it works, but it's taken a lot of time and a lot of emotional exposure to to come to the right place. I think that's the, the fallacy that even if you're good at talking, it's not necessarily an easy thing to do, particularly about things like money. I mean, I admitted this on the show before, but I have a hard time talking to my husband about financial matters when they're financial matters that I don't particularly want to talk about. And sometimes they're, they are things that I, I don't want to talk about, but we mark it in our calendar and we make ourselves sit down and do it because if you don't do it and you sweep it under the rug, it it becomes like one of those friends that you put off calling, and the more you put it off, the harder it becomes to do. It's true. My own analogy is very similar, but I think of unspoken thoughts and difficulties as termites, and, you know, they seem, okay, I can forget about it because I'm just not going to listen to that little tap, 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 that whatever it is in the wall, because then I have to open up the wall and deal with it. But the longer you let it go, termites multiply and then you lean against a wall one day and it crumbles in your your hand and and I think that can happen to a marriage you you put away all the little things that are bothering you and they grow in your head or they grow in their head or both and 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 at some point you have a conflagration because you never put out the small fires 
Yeah, no question. So let's touch on technology while we've still got a few minutes. What's your opinion on technology in relationships? Is all the texting and social media, is it bringing us closer together or is it driving us apart? Like a lot of things, it does both, I think. It's an easy way to stay in contact, particularly um, when you're really busy. You can drop a line. You could, if you use it imaginatively, you could just throw in a little I love you sign out of the blue. I mean, there's ways to be in contact with your, your lover, your partner, your friends that wasn't there before. But then you start to stop talking. You know, I mean, I how many times have you, I know I've done this, where we're going back and forth with an email that's not going anywhere. And someone says, should we talk? You know? Yeah. So yes, yes, we should talk. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and and then that's where it's gotten dangerous. We should talk. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I will just pick up the phone. Yes, and and that's it. I mean, sometimes it should have happened earlier in the uh, conversation, particularly because if anything sticky is going on, I think most of us have learned by now that email is a very dangerous place to try and settle anything serious anything with any prickles to it, because those words are flat. They don't have inflection. They can't be gone back and forth in, in the same way a verbal conversation can. You can get in big trouble with someone, and even someone as close to you as your partner, when you're just depending on email. The other thing about technology is, I mean, so often these days when you hear stories about infidelity in relationships, technology is playing a decent-sized role. And I think that's true of financial infidelity as well. I mean, when we talk about telling financial lies in our relationships, we're often talking about purchases that we've made surreptitiously or debts that we've incurred that we're not copping to. I mean, how do you deal with the whole issue of not being open and honest with the person that you're involved with? And and how do you get past that? That's a tough one, particularly if it's something serious. I mean, there's probably a huge percentage of people that have what they would think of as fibbing and what is actually a lie about what something costs that they bought because they know it's outside the lines of what would be acceptable to their partner. And they would rather just get over the fact that the dress wasn't on sale and wasn't as inexpensive as they're saying, then deal with it. But what I would say is, yeah, no, one little thing like that isn't a big deal, but it does say that you guys have really not come to terms with how you're living and what needs to be a joint philosophy, even if that joint philosophy is that each of us will overspend occasionally and we'll we'll draw some limit as a joint decision on what that would be. But I think real economic infidelity can be as hurtful and as dangerous as sexual infidelity. If someone is building up a really big debt that could endanger the relationship's future, Mm -hmm. and they need help, they realize, people like that often mostly realize that they're out of control, they've got to go back to the partnership and say, I don't know, I'm doing impulsive spending, I don't know what to do about it. It's, It's truly important that no one digs the other person into a situation where they're both side uh, sideswiped you know yeah who knew right 
which it, is which will be part of the betrayal. In your opinion, in your professional opinion, when we're talking about things like impulse control as it relates to spending or gambling, is it the same sort of problem with impulse control that people have with alcohol, with drugs, with food, with sex? Absolutely. They may be of, of differing um, impulsiveness depending on the category, but it's the same sort of feeling. I want it. I want it now. I don't want to think about it. Uh, I need it. If I don't have it, I'm not going to be happy. I'm going to do it. And that all happens in a split second. And then later feelings of regret, of remorse, perhaps of guilt. You pick the category. That sequence is familiar in some category to a lot of people. And so if this is sounding familiar, then you go out, you get help from a therapist, from an organization, a 12-step program? Well, you know, a 12-step program is, is a big commitment. It just depends how bad your problem is. But if you see, if that does sound familiar to you, it really would be good to at least start um, with your partner. And if you can't do that, to a best friend uh, and find somebody who might be a good counselor for you. Um, and then if we're at something, the magnitude of a gambling addiction, a food addiction, a sex addiction, and by that I don't mean necessarily that you go into spasms if you try and stop, but rather you are out of control, you don't like what you're doing and you regret it, and it has consequences. If that sequence is familiar, then you may really have to get into a more serious program that helps you be the person you want to be and doesn't let you undercut your own life. And your own relationship. And your own relationship. You owe your partner your loyalty in all categories. Pepper Schwartz, you are um, always so full of fantastic information. Thank you for doing this with me today. Where should we be looking for you and, and what's the latest book? Well, you can find me um, at pepperschwartz.com or pepperschwartz.net. Um, you could certainly find me in Married at First Sight. Check the seasons or at our spinoff, Second Chances. And um, my latest book is Snap Strategies, uh, 40 Fast Fixes for Couple Issues. And um, I hope some of the answers to some of these things we've discussed are in there for people. I'm sure that they will be. Do you think you could send us, say, three copies of that book to give away to our listeners? I would love to do that, Jean. Absolutely. Just give me uh, a snail mail address and they'll be yours. Awesome. Thank you so much, Pepper. We'll talk to you soon. And Kelly has joined me in the studio. Thanks for coming in. Absolutely. I love Pepper. I do, too. I love Pepper. And, you know, we should tell people when we first decided to test out the concept of doing a podcast, we sat down and we did a test case, and Pepper was gracious enough to be our test case. She's just a lovely person. And I'm so happy for her heading into the summer and getting married again. He's a great guy. It's so exciting. So this is show number 46, I believe. Time flies, which is very, very exciting. But as we head into our 50th show, 
we're going to do something a little special. We've been rallying the troops, and by troops, I mean our previous guests, gathering books from the various authors. And Mm -hmm. so for our 50th show, we will be doing a 50-book giveaway. We will. And what do we want people to tell us in order to qualify for these books? First of all, we would love to have you share the show. We're going to create a link that you can use to share the show. So that's number one. Number two, we want to hear how this show has impacted your financial lives. So drop us a line on any social media, email us at jeanchatsy.com and tell us how has her money changed your financial life. And hashtag it her money. So hashtag we'll find her it. money. Yep, that would be great. So please reach out. And so many of our guests are incredible authors as well. And we have almost like a library. So we would love to give you some books. Well, we have a few questions today. Our first is from Deb. She messaged us on Facebook. She goes, hi, Jean and Kelly. I'm a regular listener and look forward to each week when a new podcast downloads on my phone. Thank you, Deb. Thank you, Deb. She says, I have a question. My husband and I seem to be fairly on track for our savings for retirement. We are both in our early 40s and have two children in elementary school. We see a financial planner, but I'd like to get a hold of some type of website or tool where I can put in our savings and 401k information to get a better idea of what we would have available in retirement if we were to continue on this trajectory. Do you suggest any tools? Thank you. So, Deb, you can go to my website, which is jeanchatsky.com. I've got a nice calculator that we call the Retirement Nest Egg Calculator, and it is very, very easy to work your way through. But I should also point out that every financial institution has their own calculator. Um, Fidelity has a great one. Other financial institutions have one. Your bank has one. They're all over the place. And what I would suggest, because they all operate on slightly different math in the background, is that you run a couple of them. You know, run mine, run Fidelity's, pick another one or two, put your numbers in, and you'll get a very solid idea of where you're going to end up and whether or not you're on the right track. And the other thing that I've found is really helpful are the benchmarks. And again, these come from Fidelity, which is our sponsor, but they're the best set of benchmarks that I have found in my reporting for people to be able to just eyeball and say, yes or no, I am or I'm not on the right track. And this is how they lay out. By age 30, you should have one times your income, current income, put away for your future. By age 40, three times. And again, we're your current income at age 40. By age 50, six times. By age 60, eight times. And by the time you retire, 10 times. And if you can hit those benchmarks, you should be able to maintain your standard of living in retirement. One note, these were developed for people who make between $50,000 and $300,000 a year. Do you have a benchmark or a different set of benchmarks for people who make less than 50000 The less that you make, the less you need to replace because Social Security will come along and actually replace a more significant chunk of your income. So you could end up hedging a little bit lower than those numbers, but I would feel safer if you aim to be in that range. Okay. 
All right. Our next question is from Whitney. She tweeted us at Whitney923. She says, three cards, limits 5, 10, and 15K. She's talking credit cards? She's talking credit cards. Okay. And $15,000 worth of debt. Will it hurt my credit score to put all of this debt on the largest limit card if she keeps the others open? Yes, it actually probably will because credit utilization, which we've talked about before, is one of the big factors that goes into calculating your credit score. It accounts for about a third of your credit score. And credit utilization is essentially the amount of debt you're carrying compared with the amount of credit you have available to you. So she's carrying 15000 in debt. Mm-hmm. She's got a $15,000 credit line, a $10,000 credit line, and a $5,000 credit line. So she's carrying 15000 in debt. She's got 30000 in available credit. She's carrying essentially 50%, which is too high. You want to aim to be between 10% and 30%. The other complicating factor in utilization is that it's measured not just on all your cards together, but on each card individually. So you don't want to be at more than 10 to 30 percent of any card in your wallet at any particular time. I didn't know it was individual cards, too. It is. It's on the whole shebang, and it's on each individual card as well. And so here's what I would say. If that card with the $15,000 limit is offering you the lowest interest rate, which based on her question, I would guess it is, before you transfer the balance over there, call them and ask for a substantial increase in your credit line and then don't use it. Um, Because at that point, you will be able to reduce your utilization by paying off the debt, which hopefully she'll be able to do fairly quickly at a low interest rate. But you definitely don't want to be at 100% utilization. Is asking for more credit or extending the line of credit on a card better for your score in the long run than opening a new card Oh, yeah, much. In fact, asking for more credit on a card that you already have, because that's not something that has to go through the credit bureaus, Mm. that's a very quick way to bump your credit score. As long as you don't use more of the credit. As long as you don't use more of the credit. Yes, yes. I know. I feel like we're, we're talking, you and I, we're looking at each other, and people can't see this, but talking very specifically because we want to get it right. But calculating credit scores is very specific business. There are a lot of hand gestures going exactly. on, too. So good luck with that. <laughs> good luck, Whitney. And our final question is from Shelly. She emailed us at jeanchatsky.com. She writes, I need direction. I have not made good choices with student loans. We have three sons all going to college, and now we are looking at student loan debt. I wanted to pay for all of it, as my parents had done for me. I am so lost with so many loans, and I am sickened by the amount of interest we are paying. Not sure how to get a handle on this. Looking at consolidation, but not sure which direction to go. Please, guidance. Thank you. Oh, boy. Okay. So I want to take a step back before I go forward with this question, because consolidation is probably going to be the right thing to do. But for all those parents out there, college costs today are so far above and beyond college costs when we were in school, and they've been increasing at three times the rate of inflation for such a long time that although I understand 
wanting to foot the entire bill for your kid and wanting to pay off those loans yourself, there are. it's okay to say, I can only pay this much. Um, you're better off saying it before your child goes to college so that your child can, with your help, make a decision about going to a college that's the best value among those schools to which he or she has been accepted. But by doing it this way, what you're doing is robbing your own ability to pay for your own retirement, and that will likely result in asking your kids to bail you out down the road. So that's not a a situation you want to put yourself in. But let's deal with the problem at hand. Yeah, I would absolutely look at consolidating because you're dealing with two things here. You're dealing with an abundance of debt, but you're also dealing with an administrative nightmare because of the different loans that have been taken out. You don't have just one loan per child. You've got a whole portfolio of loans for each kid, and that's a mess of paperwork. So pick up the phone or Before you even pick up the phone, go to the computer, go to a website called magnifymoney.com. They put together a list of the best student loan refinancing offers out there. You're going to want to look at alternative lenders like SoFi, like Common Bond, like Citizens Bank, and see what's available to you. And then, yeah, consolidate and work to pay them down as quickly as you can. And If your kids are doing well and they can sense the trouble that you're having and they offer to pitch in to help pay for their education, in hindsight, it's okay to say yes. Thank you, Jean. You are very welcome. Please keep your letters, your emails, your tweets, and your posts coming. You can find us at jeanchatsky.com, on Twitter at jeanchatsky, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. Pretty much on all social media. Yeah, you can find us on social. We'll be there. Okay. Thanks, Cal. Thanks. Finally, let's take a turn and go to our Thrive segment for today. There's an episode of How I Met Your Mother, or as my children call it, Him Yim, in which the happily married couple, Lily and Marshall, apply for a loan to buy their dream apartment, only to discover that they're only eligible for one with an 18% interest rate. You see... That's when Marshall met Lily's credit card debt, the debt that she failed to tell him about because Lily had a long history of committing financial infidelity. And while the show is fictional, as we were talking with Pepper Schwartz about earlier, the concept of financial infidelity is a very real thing. An estimated 13 million Americans have bank accounts or credit cards that their spouses don't know about, according to research from creditcards.com. Is having a separate bank account cheating? No. In fact, I'm an advocate of having separate accounts, three in particular, one for me, one for you, and one for the house. But separate doesn't mean secret. That's where you get into trouble. That's why it's important to regularly discuss the household finances and have financial decisions be a joint effort. And whether the accounts are joint or separate, couples should not only be aware of them, but they should have an idea of what's going on with them. And should something happen to you, your spouse should be able to do relatively simple things like 
paying bills on your behalf if you're not able to do that because you're caught overseas or laid up in the hospital or something else has happened to you. Keep the lines of communication open. Thank you so much for listening to me today. Thanks to Dr. Pepper Schwartz for a wonderful conversation. We'll have to have her back again very soon. Coming up next week on the show, I'm so excited about this, Dr. Michael Roizen will be here. Dr. Roizen of the Cleveland Clinic is my co-author on the book that I am about to debut. It's called Age Proof, Living Longer Without Running Out of Money or Breaking a Hip. Stay tuned because we'll be giving away copies in the coming weeks. I also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. Please keep listening, and we'll talk soon.